Good morning. Good to be with you. Uh, the book we're going to be in today is Joel. We're going to be in chapter two. Uh, you know, it is appropriate on a day when we are mourning and grieving the injustice and the brokenness and the persistence of injustice and brokenness in our world that we would be in a minor prophet that commands us so often to grieve and to mourn. Um, and uh, we're going to wrap up our series in the Minor Prophets for a time today with Joel chapter 2. I can't think of a better place to end it. Uh, next week, as Caitlin mentioned in the video, we're going to dive into a new series and uh, be in that for Lent, and then we'll come back and tackle the last three books after Easter. So, Joel chapter 2. Here's something I hope is obvious as we've studied the prophets. Uh, fear and condemnation have never produced lasting life change. You know that, right? Like this is what the prophets are saying. Fear and condemnation have never and will never produce lasting life change. Fear will make you turn for a minute, but when the fear wanes, we eventually go back to what we're doing, and that is the story of the prophets. Their record as it turns out, is 0-12 in terms of getting God's people to actually turn from sin, trust God, trust the promise, and embrace this dream of God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. You know, there's a, a moment where Jonah gets a little bit of repentance out of the Assyrians. That lasts for a little bit. Micah gets Hezekiah to turn as the Assyrian army is bearing down on uh, Jerusalem. Zephaniah gets Josiah to listen to him for a little bit about idols and justice issues. But in absolutely every single case, the turning to God just lasts briefly until the threat was gone, and then the people returned to the problematic stuff that they were doing, the sin and all that other stuff. If you've studied it, this is, in fact, the entirety of the Old Testament. This is the story that it tells, how fear and condemnation fail for humans as a deterrent from sin. This is not just something that we see in the Old Testament. It's, it's what Paul talks about in Romans 7, right? Uh, Romans 7 is a powerful passage, but the point of Romans 7 is this, is that God uh, gives us laws, gives us like this threat of punishment when we break the law, and what's ironic is that that actually creates an opportunity for sin in us to create a desire to break the law. Isn't that ironic? That, that desire eventually overcomes even the fear of punishment, no matter how bad. This is not just a biblical truth. I'm sure you've seen this in your life. We see it in society all the time. I recently was reading a study on prisoner recidivism in the United States. Uh, I, you probably know this. We have more incarcerated people in the U.S. than any other nation on the planet. And that is both the, like the raw number and also the per capita number. We have a lot of incarcerated people in the U.S. In 2005, the Bureau of Justice Statistics tracked 401,000 prisoners who were released from prison in 2005. So They'd done something wrong, they got caught, they got convicted, they served their time, and then they were released. Did that produce life change? Well, what they discovered is in the following nine years, 83% of that group was rearrested. In fact, as a whole, that group, 401,000 people, accounted for 1.99 million arrests. 
Almost 2 million arrests for 400,000 people who were released after they had been punished for wrongdoing. Now, I, I understand it's a complex issue. There's a lot of factors that contribute to that, but one of them is what we're reading in the Old Testament is fear of punishment has never been an effective means of changing someone's life. Never has, never will. In fact, the way sin works, the threat of punishment can actually make us more interested in the sin, not less. This is something I learned in Mr. Johnson's fifth grade class. Mr. Johnson was my favorite teacher in elementary school. I loved him. I respected him. I enjoyed it. Uh, we were doing a study on the weather where you track the temperature every day. Uh, and, it, you know, fifth grade stuff like that. They'd send us out in groups of five and you'd look at the thermometer and you'd write down the temperature. And I don't know, we were supposed to learn something by that. But one particularly cold day, Mr. Johnson, who I liked, I generally tried to obey what Mr. Johnson said. He said to the class, he said, listen, I'm going to send you out there to check the thermometer, but it's so cold, I want you to know your body heat will raise the thermometer's temperature, so do not touch the thermometer under any circumstance, and if you do, you're going to have to sit in the corner. Now, this had never occurred to me, that I had that power, Right? that my body heat could change the thermometer. I understand, like, you, you're, as a kid, you get your temperature taken all the time because you get sick. But in this context, I'm like, is that even possible? And I couldn't stop thinking about it. I, I didn't understand why I couldn't stop thinking about it because I hadn't read Romans 7, but Paul clearly explains it right there. <laughs> but suddenly, all I could think about is touching that thermometer. And I went out there and I put my thumb on the thermometer. Um, like intentionally, it wasn't an accident. And I, that temperature shot up by about 10 degrees. And I was fascinated by that. Um, and while I was sitting in the corner that day, I, <laughs> I didn't realize I had just experienced the Old Testament in a nutshell, right? That is the story of the Old Testament. Fear, warnings of punishment have never been very effective at changing people's heart or getting us to do the right thing. Fear might keep us in line for a while, but when the source of fear is removed, sometimes it doesn't even have to be removed. Just even in the presence of the source of fear, we still have these unchanged hearts that we have to deal with. I think that's why the most important thing that we read in the prophets is not actually the judgment stuff. They talk a lot about that, but it's not actually the threat of punishment that's the most important thing about the prophets. I think the most important thing about the prophets, if, if I was going to sum it up in one word, is the word then. They use that word. They say then, or they, they'll say on that day. Because when the prophets are speaking uh, like for now, like, like to their day, it's all about what people need to do. It's all about shape up, uh, you know, watch out, get your act together. God's going to punish you. But when the prophets say then or on that day or one day, suddenly it shifts from what we have to do to what God one day would do, right? And that is the most important part of the prophets, that they cast this vision of then. Then God will do for us what we never could do for ourselves, on that day, God would accomplish for us what all of the punishment in all of the world never could actually accomplish for us. And that's where Joel is going to take us in chapter 2, to that day. So find your way to verse 18 of chapter 2. 
We started last week looking at how Joel is talking about this horrible tragedy of the locust. It's a devastating situation in the ancient world. Uh, they destroyed everything, and, uh, and Joel kind of throws in, oh yeah, by the way, eventually God is going to judge you all, and there's going to be more locusts, metaphorically speaking, and uh, there's going to be more tragedy. Uh, but the point of all of that is that when our world falls apart, we have to turn to God, we have to grieve and turn to Him. And that's true whether the crisis is a result of our sin or just the brokenness of the world. But then he says the most powerful word in all the prophets, verse 18, then the Lord was jealous for His land and took pity on His people. Then. So he's talking about this one day. He's talking about this day when everything would change. Notice, why does everything change? Or a better question is, why doesn't everything change? Notice what he doesn't say, right? He doesn't say, then the people got their act together. Then the people stopped all that sinning. Then God's people found willpower and discipline and loved obedience. That's not what he says, right? What he does say is, then God took pity on his people. Like, this is the moment that God looks at his people. This is the day when God looks at his people and says, I see that you are incapable of this. I will do it for you. Listen to what he describes. It's a, it's a pretty beautiful picture if you understand the ancient world and the dependence on the land and the jeopardy that they were in because of the locusts. Let me just read this over you. Try to picture this. Verse 19. The Lord replied to them, I'm sending you grain, new wine, olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I'll drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into the parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea. Its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea. And its stench will go up. Its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals. For the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locust, the young locust, the other locusts, and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again, never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I'm in Israel, that I'm the Lord your God, and that there is no other never again Will my people be shamed? It's kind of beautiful, right? I mean, you think about the ancient world that was so dependent upon the land and so dependent upon the seasons for survival, for nutrition, for everything. Um, I mean, this is a picture of all that they could hope for. Abundance. Everything that they needed. My favorite phrase, though, in this passage is never. 
When God says, never again, never again. He says, there's coming a day where all of this shame for your disobedience will be permanently gone. And never again will my people be shamed. See, what he's speaking to is this cycle that we see again and again in the Old Testament. And I'm sure it sounds familiar to you. Uh, You know, people do bad things and God shows up through the prophets or through somebody else and says, hey, shame on you people. Stop it. Stop doing that or I'm going to let you feel all the consequences of this sin. And the people say, well, that's scary. I don't think I want that. So let's stop. Let's stop doing it. And they stop. They say, we're so ashamed. God, please help us. And he steps in and he helps us. And then what happens? They forget. They forget the love of God. They forget the dream of God. And it happens all over again and again and again. And you and I are like thousands of years removed from this cycle that we read about in the Old Testament, but we still see it in our lives, don't we? Like we do something and we struggle with a sin and we feel shame about that. Shame is not just I did something wrong, but it's like I, I think there's something wrong with me. And none of us like feeling shame. Like we try to distance ourselves from that feeling. And so we're like, man, I got to get my act together i got to pull it together and stop that thing. And so we swear we're never going to do it again. We're going to clean up our act. And we do for a while. And we sort of feel good about ourselves. And then it wears off. And we're back at it again. And then that shame comes back. And the cycle continues again and again and again. Let me just point something out to all of us. This is true. This is like my summary of the entire Old Testament. You don't have to read it. Just this is, I'm going to sum it up, all of it, for you. If you are seeking to shame yourself or someone else out of sinning, it will never work. Never. It never has. The entire Old Testament proves that. It has never worked. This cycle of shame and then trying harder, it it just real simply is not New Testament biblical Christianity. That's not the faith that we've signed up for. That's Old Testament Jewish law-based religion, and it never works. And if you're trying to do that, shame yourself out of sinning or shame someone else out of sinning, let me just say, I mean, shame on you. Stop it. God's going to punish you for that. No, I'm just... I mean, using shame to try to get someone to stop using shame is as crazy as using shame to try to get us to stop sinning. Show me a time when it's worked. Show me a time when it's changed the human heart. It's counterproductive and it's never worked. That's why Joel says, then, on that day, never again will my people be shamed. That cycle will be mercifully over. Let's keep reading. Verse 28. Joel starts describing that day even more thoroughly. These are the words of God to his people. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So he gives us this vision 
of here's this day, right? So God's going to do something, never again will my people be shamed. And then after that, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all of my people and every single one of them will have access to God's vision, sons, daughters, old men, young men, slaves, men, women, everyone. They're going to speak truth to one another. They're going to prophesy to one another. They're going to see amazing wonders and these incredible signs. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Side note here, uh, if you want an Old Testament justification for women teaching men, which some churches struggle with, this is it. Everyone who has the Spirit of God was expected to speak what the Spirit revealed. And God's people were expected to listen to whoever spoke with the Spirit of God. And so it is relevant that he says both men and women, young and old, everyone is speaking to everyone else here. That is the point that under the Spirit of God, when the Spirit comes, we're all on equal ground in our ability to hear from God and to speak it to one another. On that day, everyone's voice matters. Then even slaves get to speak God's word to their masters, and God expects their masters to listen. That's the day he's talking about. Now, if you know your Bible, of course, that's going to bring us right to Acts chapter 2, isn't it? Turn over to Acts 2. Let me show you something. I love this story, um, and I love what is revealed in it. You may know it. Jesus dies. And some stuff happens that sounds familiar. The sky turned dark as night. There's a powerful earthquake. The giant curtain in the temple rips from top to bottom. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Then he rose from the dead. He ascends into heaven. And when he does that, he leaves his followers on this mountainside. And he says, hey, go back to Jerusalem and just wait for the Spirit. Wait for something. And that's what they were doing when the Holy Spirit descended, just like Joel said it would, And there was fire on their heads. That sounds familiar. And everyone in the room, young, old, male, female, slave, free, starts praising and prophesying. And there was such a commotion. People are like, what is happening? And everybody comes running and there's a big crowd that gathers. And some people are like, I think they're drunk. No one realized this was then. This was the then. This was the on that day. That for thousands of years, God's people had been hoping would come. And then when it showed up, they're like, what is going on here? We don't even recognize this. But one guy put it all together in that moment. It was the Apostle Peter. Look at what he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then from memory, he rattles off what we just read. In the last days, God said, I'll pour out my spirit on all peoples. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before this coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's saying this is the day. This is then. And then he explains why. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. 
This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He keeps talking, keeps explaining the story, but he, he kind of sums it up. This is his big finish. Look at verse 38. So what? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, just like Joel said you would. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off and for all whom the Lord God will call. What's so amazing about this is for thousands of years they were anticipating it. And it's like this moment in time where like Peter is the first guy to say, this is that day. This is then. This is what we've been thinking about for so long. That day when the Spirit of God is loosed on the world, when it's poured out and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved, that was this day in Acts chapter 2. That day when God's people would never be shamed again, that day happened 2,000 years ago. That is the day we're living in today. So what Joel's predicting, what Peter is announcing, is everything has changed. This Old Testament cycle is forever done. And this new day has come where everyone who turns to Jesus is saved and everyone who turns to Jesus has full access to the Spirit of God because God in his great compassion took pity on us and said, I see that you're incapable of this. I will do it for you. And he did it. And he delivered us by doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so I think this is maybe the lesson when you put these two passages together. Um, I'd say if Peter was right, that means it's time to leave behind our Old Testament lifestyle. <laughs> like for good, maybe. It's time to just leave it behind. This vicious cycle of shame and fear, of effort and punishment. It's time to be done with that because this is the truth that Peter brings. Either Jesus did it all or you have to do it. There's no more middle ground. Either Jesus earned it all, did it all, all we do is call on him or we have to do it. We have to avoid the shame, avoid the fear, avoid the punishment and it's on us. There is no middle ground. It's one or the other. One of the implications of this is this. I, you know, when we feel shame, shame is not that I've done something wrong, but it's that there's something wrong with me. And when we feel that, right? Like there are moments where we might turn to Scripture and say, well, isn't God using kind of shame in my life? Is that shame is probably from God. There's something wrong with me. Um, but if Joel and Peter are right and this new day has come, then I, what they're teaching us is no, 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 no. Never again will God use shame to try to get us to comply. That's not his tool anymore. And so I think what we have to consider in those moments when we're feeling shame and we're like, God, is that you? Is that it may, in fact, not be God. It may actually be the enemy of our souls trying to keep us in this effort-based religion that relies on us expending the effort to get acceptability with God instead of relying on the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And maybe that shame is not at all from God. Peter says, today is that day. 
Never again will my people be shamed because everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Like this is the most radical shift in the history of shifts, right? Like this is why we call it the New Testament because something fundamentally new that is unlike anything that has gone before it has come. How do we embrace it? How do we walk in this, right? This incredible shift here. I, there's a bunch of answers to that, right? You know, like, I, like we embrace it when we stop relying on our own efforts to save us. Call on the name of Jesus to save us. Trust his sacrifice, not our efforts. We embrace it when we stop trying to make God happy with us. That we realize that either he's happy with us because of Jesus or he's never going to be happy with us. Either we're accepted because of Christ or we're never going to be accepted. And we leave behind the world of shame. We embrace it when we listen to the Holy Spirit. That's what Joel's pointing at is there's this day coming when everybody has access to the Holy Spirit. And all of us can listen and all of us can speak. You know, the shift I'm most passionate about or the way that I would describe embracing this shift, I, I, let me say it this way and I'll explain. We embrace the new day we are living in when we shift our focus from where is the boundary to what is the center. We shift the focus of our spirituality from the question of where is the boundary, God, and we shift our spiritual life to ask the question, what is the center, God? Here's what I mean. Uh, scripturally, I, I think we see two primary approaches to spirituality, and they're both in Scripture for different reasons. The Old Testament is dominated by what I would say is the boundary approach. So there are questions like, what is the line that separates obedience from disobedience? That's a real important question in the Old Testament. Like, like who is in? Who is approved? Who is clean? And who's out? Who is not approved by God? Who is unclean? Who's outside of the boundary, right? Those are, uh, like, there's a lot of time given in the Old Testament to answering those sorts of questions. And the teachers of the law, and specifically in Jesus' day, would, like, obsess over answering those questions of who is in and who is out, where's the boundary, and answering it, like, in exquisite detail so that they could make sure that we never drift over that line and become unacceptable and unclean. Those questions are really, they're, what they're kind of about is setting up a fence around us as God's people. And the way that you get approved by God is by staying within the fence. That's like the job is just don't drift outside the fence. And the prophets, they show up and they're like, guys, you're way, way outside the fence. Come on back inside the fence. And that's the message of so much of the Old Testament. What Peter's introducing in the New Testament is that something has unfolded that is totally different. A totally different approach to spirituality. And you can find this in the Old Testament too. I don't mean to suggest that it's not there, but instead of establishing the boundary that tells everyone what they must do to stay safe, what Peter has done instead is he has established a center, right? And the center is Jesus Christ. And anyone who has a relationship with the center, no matter what else is true about them, is good from God's perspective. And what's so disorienting about this, the reason it was so difficult for people to really understand this is because they knew the implication of that, is that what it meant is literally anyone can get in. Literally anyone can be accepted by God. Peter says, like he underlines it, he's like, for all who are far off, 
Like far off, meaning way outside of the fence. They can't even see the fence from where they're standing. For those people, Jesus is the answer. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved. And, you know, there's lots of questions. Well, what about people who just don't try very hard? They're not trying to be good people. We're working so hard to be good people and stay inside the boundary. What about those people who aren't trying? Well, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved. What about people who just can't stop sinning? You know, they just don't seem to take it seriously. They're not stopping their sin. Well, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved. What about people who believe all the wrong things? I mean, there are people who believe stuff that, like, is... Like way, way outside the boundary. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved. And what Peter says about the center is in the center, it is the trustworthiness of God that saves people, not the compliance of humans. And that is the most radical shift ever. In essence, he's saying these days of trusting the efforts of humans to stay within the boundary are over, which, by the way, never worked. Show me a time when it worked. It never worked. The only thing that's left is trusting the efforts of the risen Jesus. It's such a radical notion. You know what I think often happens? Like most of us do this. I do this too. Most of us, were like, that's pretty radical. So we opt for Jesus plus a big fence. Because both end, that's a good answer, right? Jesus plus a big fence, so that way we know we're one of the good people. That way we know who are the, the bad people, who's on the outside. And that tells us we're on the inside because we can see the fence and it feels good to be inside of the fence. So give me Jesus and give me a big fence. But here's the thing. What the prophets are telling us is that fence never worked. That fence was an illusion that we used to trick ourselves into thinking that we had it figured out. It didn't work in their day and it won't work in ours. And by the way, Jesus, when he showed up, he kind of just burned that fence to the ground. When the temple tore in two, that was the last day of that fence, when that temple curtain tore. Never again will our relationship be determined by our compliance and our ability to get it right. The day has come where the only thing that matters is what Jesus did. And that concept of staying inside the boundary so God is pleased with you, um, it's over. It's the risen Christ or nothing. Joel says, then you will know that I'm in Israel, that I am the Lord your God. There's no other. Never again will my people be shamed. The great teacher, Paul the Apostle, says, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And what all of Scripture is pointing us to is this simple truth that our, our hope is not that we stay inside the boundary and avoid judgment. No matter how it might appear, that is not our hope. Our only hope, that's, like it's never worked, our only hope is that God did it for us. That's literally our only chance. That he sent his son and he did what we were powerless to do. And the fact that we keep running back to the law just affirms our powerlessness. Our only hope is him. So let me ask you this. Are you focused on the boundary or the center? 
when you think about your spirituality, are you, are you judging yourself by your ability to get it right? Are you judging others by their ability to get it right? Or do you see yourself through what Christ has done for you? When you look at other people not getting it right, do you see them through what Christ has accomplished for them? You know what's cool about us? I mean, a lot of things, but you know what's really cool about us? Is we were born in one day, you know? Like for thousands of years, God's people were like, oh, just one day, God, you'll show up and you'll do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Just that, that is our hope that then you will do it. You and I were born in, in that day. Like that day happened thousands of years before you and I ever showed up on the scene. So since we have inherited this really awesome thing, like we didn't do it. It was done long before we got here. We just inherited this really awesome thing. Let's not run back to that Old Testament way of life. Let's not cheapen the hopes of our spiritual mothers and fathers by living in Old Testament spirituality where we try to behave ourselves out of shame and fear and into acceptability with God. Joel tells us on that day, Peter tells us on this day, God has done what we were powerless to do for ourselves. And if he has done it, there's no shame for us to overcome. There is no fear for us to avoid with God. There's no fence of acceptability that we have to find and stay inside of. There's just a Jesus to love because he's done it all. Let's live into that identity. God, we come to you surprised and disturbed It's honestly hard to even believe that you would do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. But we're humbled and thankful. And so God, I ask for each of us that, that you would draw our eyes away from boundary-keeping spirituality and towards just the center of Jesus Christ. May we orient around that. May we trust that even when we are far off, that is all that matters is what you've done. Lord, I don't like to be pitied particularly. And yet I read this and I am so deeply grateful that you took pity on us and did for us what we could never have succeeded at doing. Help us not to run back to our own efforts and to see them for what they are and to run consistently to trusting your son. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand together. Oh Christ, be the center of our lives. Be the place we fix our eyes. Be the center of our lives And you're the center of the universe Everything was made in you And Jesus Breath of every living thing, everyone was made for you. 
you hold everything together you hold everything together oh Christ be the center of our lives be the place we fix our eyes be the center of our lives You're the center of the universe, everything was made in you. Jesus, breath of every living thing, everyone was made for you. You hold everything together, you hold everything together. You hold everything together You hold everything together Oh Christ, be the center of our lives Be the place we fix our eyes Be the center of our lives Oh Christ, be the center of our lives, be the place we fix our eyes, be the center of our lives. And we lift our eyes to heaven, and we wrap our lives. 